Hey guys, welcome to our very first podcast series here on the Bell Shoals Women podcast. We are thrilled to begin our first series with a study called Sheep, the worth of women in the storyline of the Bible. Now this study was written by speaker, author, and great friend to our podcast, April Swears. If you'd like to know more about April, you can find more of her content on her podcast called Her God Speaks or by visiting her webpage at hergodspeaks.com. I am so excited about this study because it's journey through the Bible with our eyes wide open to the value of women. We are gonna explore what is truth and maybe some mistruth we've heard in regard to women and learn how we were created in the image of God and that we are essential to his mission in the world. The Bell Shoals Women podcast proudly presents She with April Swears. All right, well, this Bible study has been all about the worth of women. What's interesting is that this final lesson will make very little mention of women at all. And that's because we have made it to the very end of the biblical storyline. So the storyline of the Bible can be divided four ways, creation, the fall, redemption, and new creation. Sometimes that last one is referred to um, as the consummation. And at the very end of the Bible, the new creation part, the only feminine title specifically identified in the new heaven and the new earth is the bride of Christ, which is a metaphor for the entire church encompassing both genders. So if you remember way back to our very first, um, actually it was our very second lesson in Genesis chapter one, the Bible opens with the collective pronoun they. And that is how the Bible closes as well. And I hope that as you worked the homework this week, you saw a profound message of worth and dignity in this. Because if women were second rate or God's plan B, the bride metaphor would be out of place. It wouldn't make any sense. If gender roles and functions were the be all end all of the Christian life as some make them out to be, then surely they would show up again here at the culmination of all things, but they do not. In fact, even marriage between men and women, which is so precious, so important to God, according to Jesus in Matthew 22, doesn't continue into the eternal state because it was always just a picture. It's a shadow of the relationship between Christ and his bride. And you don't need the picture when you have the real thing. So eternity, eternity is our focus today. And here's our main idea. All that is broken in us and around us will one day be restored and made whole forever. I just got to say amen to that before we even get going. Like that just right there, I'm done. We can go home. That's good news, right? Like everything that is broken in us and around us will one day be restored and made whole forever. And our outline's really simple today. I'm just going to walk through Revelation 21 and 22. and I'm going to pull out five facts about the new creation, the eternal state, the consummation, whatever you want to call it. Um, And these are all so 
so powerful, so encouraging. Um, I've really been looking forward to this particular lesson. So let's go ahead and start. Number one, the first thing we learn is that the new creation happens when heaven comes down to earth. Emphasis on that phrase, comes down. Now, I mentioned, I think it was in week two of the homework, that there are three Ps that loom large in the narrative of Scripture. And they are the presence of God, the people of God, and the place of God. Like, you see those all the way from Genesis throughout the whole of the Bible to Revelation. And I want you to kind of be looking for those. I'm going to read um, the first three verses of chapter 21 of Revelation says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. And they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. All right, so we have those three Ps all right here. So we have God's presence, which is with redeemed humanity, right? And and those are the ones who make up his people, those who have trusted in Christ. Um, And the place, what is the place? The final place, it's the new heaven and the new earth. And I want us to pay special attention to this place because there's a lot of confusion about this. There's a lot of mashup of what we see like on television, what we learned from the little flannel grass illustrations in Sunday school growing up. And you mash all those up, throw in a few Bible verses, and that's how most of us have formed our idea of the eternal state. Let's go to the word and see what it actually, see what's actually going on there. All right. So the new heaven, referred to as the new Jerusalem, it comes down. And we see this. It's actually emphasized again in verse 9. Take a look. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls, filled the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me. He says, Come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And then he carried me away, the Spirit, on a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So what do we learn from this? Well, we learn that the eternal state is not some ethereal place way out there somewhere in the sweet by and by that we're all transported to after Christ returns for his bride. Our eternal home is actually going to be here on a fully restored planet earth. There will be mountains and trees, and plants, and animals, and food, and culture. We will have glorified human bodies that can run, and jump, and dance, and hug, and kiss, and eat. And since eating is very important to me, I actually want to show you in the Bible how we know that we will eat, because this is going to bless some of you. I've got some fellow foodies in the room, so let's go there. I want you to look with me. Luke chapter 24. And this is just a bonus, a free bonus today. Luke chapter 24, verse 36, all right? So this is, Christ has been crucified. He has risen from the dead. 
It says, as they were saying these things, Jesus himself stood in their midst and he said to them, peace to you. This is the disciples here. But they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled, he asked them, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, that, excuse me, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you can see I have. So it's a really important text in helping us understand the nature of a glorified human body. Right? So we can learn a lot about what our bodies will be like in heaven from, from seeing what Jesus' body was like after his resurrection. All right, and look at this next verse. Let's see. Uh, having said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, but while they were still amazed and in disbelief because of their joy, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And so they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate in their presence. So there you have it. Glorified bodies eat. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And oh my word, can you even imagine the food in eternity? Wow. So amazing. I love thinking of stuff like that. All right. So what we think of as heaven, right, the eternal state, is not an alternative to this world. It's actually the radical healing and rehabilitation of this world. All right, so not an alternative. It's not way up in the sky somewhere in the sweet by and by. It's actually heaven comes down. It's fully united to earth. And this is the focal point um, of God's work for all eternity. Theologian Michael Bird, one of my favorites, he describes it this way. He says, though God, and I think this is on your listening guide. I think I put it on there. Though God made heaven and earth, he intended to remake both and join them together forever. I would go so far as to say that the chief promise of the gospel is not that we will go to heaven when we die, but that heaven will come to earth, transforming the world, renewing the earth, and remaking the cosmos, end quote. Now, here's why this is so important to understand, just on a really practical level. For most of my life, I've tried really, really, really hard to get excited about heaven. But there is absolutely nothing about an eternal church service up in the sky that makes me want to go. Like, I love me some church, you guys. I'm ready to go at 1230 because I want to eat, right? Like, and, and I feel for now that I have Landon and he's got some real challenges. And I, I feel for all like the high energy ADHD kids who've been led to believe that heaven will be a 10 billion year long church service. I mean, could there possibly be anything more horrifying than having to sit still, sing worship songs and listen to a preacher preach forever and ever and ever? Like, are you sure you aren't confusing that with hell? Because it sounds awful. But man, when I finally realized, like it clicked, and I was not young. I was like in seminary, and a professor started talking about this. I was like, what? When I finally realized that heaven comes down, earth is fully restored. There'll be meaningful work to do. There will be meaningful relationships. There will be food, and there will be art, and there will be culture. Everything that thrills my heart now, but a million times better because we will experience it all without sin, 
in the very presence of God. There will no longer be a division between the sacred and the secular. All of life will be soul-thrilling worship. What a game changer for me, you guys. Like, I'm like really excited about heaven now. We're gonna hit the pause button on our discussion of the new creation for one second. Ready? I'm hitting it right now. Pause. Because we need to talk about heaven in the sense of like where you go immediately after you die. All right? And I want to address the question of what happens then. Because what we're reading about in Revelation 21 and 22, if you look at just a basic timeline, that is still future to us, you guys. That happens upon Christ's second coming. We don't know when that's going to be. All right? So what do we mean when we say that so-and-so died and went to heaven? Well, let's talk about what heaven is from a biblical perspective. In biblical language, heaven refers to the cosmological world above and beyond the earth. It's somewhere totally beyond even what we know of space. Like it's just, it's a totally other place. It's it's where, where, where God dwells. It's where Christ currently is. You can think of it as God's control room, kind of where all his plans are laid out and he's working to bring them to pass. I like to think of heaven as the seat of God's authority, right? So that's a big picture, kind of what, how heaven is described. Now, when we talk about someone going to heaven when they die, we're actually referring to an intermediate state where believers are present with Christ immediately, but they are still waiting and longing for the new creation described in Revelation 21 and 22. So the believer who dies before Christ's second coming and his renovation of the earth, for that person, heaven is a glorious interlude. It's actually not the final destination. Michael Bird, again, quoting from him, he says, the heavenly state is like being wrapped in a blanket of joy where one is free from the sadness of this age, but still anticipates through worship the full blessing yet to come, end quote. Now, it's unclear whether or not this is an embodied state. If it is, then we're given some kind of intermediate body because the resurrection and glorification of our current bodies happens when Christ returns. So when you're at a funeral, imagining what it must be like for your loved one who has passed away, you can know for sure that if they believed in Jesus, they are with him. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Beyond that, the Bible doesn't tell us much. The Bible has so much to say about the new creation. Actually, it's very little to say about the intermediate state between the death of the saints and actually arriving in the new creation, the the actual consummation of everything. All that stuff described in Revelation 21 and 22 about pearly gates, about streets like clear gold, it is yet future. So your deceived loved ones are looking ahead to that just like you are, except they're way more certain of it than you are. One of the articles I read described the time between death and the new creation as a state of blissful longing 
And here's a cool thought I had this week. And I don't know if this is like, I don't have a verse to give you for this. But it's quite possible that you and your loved ones who have died will get to see the new creation for the first time together. Because all of that, we all enter the new creation as the bride at the same time. I think that's cool. I love that. Again, I don't have a chapter and a verse for you for that, but I think it's a really cool thought. All right? So I'm about to push the play button again on the new creation. But I wanted to address that because it's something that's not talked about at all, usually. Um, but when you're, when you're talking about, I know at funerals we say things like, oh, they're probably walking the streets of gold and they're enjoying the pearly gates. Well, I mean, that's fine. I, there's nothing wrong with thinking that way. Any, any, any thoughts we have of that intermediate state are, are, are always going to be from our imagination. And I think it's beautiful, sanctified imagination. Um, but that's technically not the, 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 the pearly gates, the streets of gold, all this stuff. That's, that's still future to all of us. Um, saints who have both died and us here now are still looking forward to those kinds of things. So anyway, play back to the new creation. All right. So number, so number one, the new creation comes down to earth. Number two, I have three fingers up. No, number two. The new creation is a resurrection. It is a resurrection, all right? So in 1 Corinthians 15, really important chapter, Paul refers to Christ as the first fruits of those who are asleep, meaning that his bodily resurrection from the dead assures our bodily resurrection from the dead. Peter, when he talks about this, he calls it a living hope stating that Christ's resurrection, the fact that he is at this very minute alive right now, guarantees an imperishable and undefiled inheritance for his people. And here in Revelation 21, we're getting a little glimpse into the future and seeing this come to pass. This is the culmination of the living hope right here. All right, so chapter 21, verse four. It says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And then one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And he also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. That is one of the most hope-filled statements in all of a scripture. Behold, I am making everything new. That's resurrection language. And of course, if there's a resurrection, there has to first be a death. There has to be a passing away. And what passes away? What dies? Death dies. <laughs> Tears die, grief dies, crying dies, pain dies. Everything that humanity's fall into sin has brought into the world, it all passes away. It all dies. It's all gone forever and ever and ever. And that's because the new creation is a radical resurrection, not just of our own physical bodies, but of the entire universe, the entire cosmos, all of earth. It's a resurrection. 
And we get to live in that resurrection forever and ever. Number three, the new creation is Eden restored, only better. So it's like Eden, I don't even want to say Eden 2.0. It's even better than that. It's like Eden 3.0, all right? And this is the coolest thing. There are so many allusions in Genesis, uh, to Genesis 2 here in Revelation. It's just so neat how the Bible ends with many of the same things it began with. All right, so I've just listed a bunch of those on your listening guide. We'll take them one by one. First of all, we see the water of life. Remember the water of life? Well, it shows up again here. Look at verse six. Uh, let's see. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. Now skip to chapter 22, verse one. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb. And down the middle of the city's main street, the tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. All right, so we saw a few weeks ago that the creation narrative actually devotes a lot of space to describing the river that flowed from God through Eden and then out into the four corners of the earth. We're given very little geographical markers in the creation narrative, but we're given the names of those rivers, right? But in their fallen state, what we see is that humans seek to quench their own thirst their own way. And this is actually, if you wanted a summary of like what the world is going on in the New Testament, what is wrong with these people? That's what's going on. You have God, the river of life, the, the satisfier, the sustainer, making himself available, but you have humans seeking to quench their own thirst their own way. So God brings them into this lush, fertile land of Canaan. But as Jeremiah describes, instead of turning to God, the fountain of living water, they dig for themselves broken cisterns that can't hold any water. And that happens over and over and over and over and over again, which is why we see so much wilderness, desert motifs. They always end up in some kind of wilderness, exiled away from the lush, fertile land that God has given them. Well, moving into the New Testament, we see another reference to the water of life in John chapter four, when Jesus tells the woman at the well that he, uh, the water he gives will satisfy completely and she'll never have to come back and get more. Then in John chapter eight, Jesus says that whoever believes in him from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. If you grew up in the church, you are now in your mind seeing, I got a river of life flowing out of me. Make some lame to what? You know that one? I love that one. So good. Had hand motions and everything. So fun. Um, yeah, so that's another reference to the water, uh, the water of life. And that, in that very passage tells us that represents the indwelling spirit whose continual flow of nourishment produces the lush vegetation listed in Galatians 5. Things like love and joy and peace and patience. Like the fruit is actually growing out of God's people because the water of the spirit is flowing within God's people. It's so beautiful, this imagery. And just like 
uh, the, the, the water that has been flowing throughout the storyline of the scripture, it continues right onto the new creation where it takes center stage and from which God's people can drink freely forever. So just like in Eden, it flows from the throne of God down the middle of the city, right down Main Street, and out into the rest of the world, nourishing life and producing a, an abundance of fruit. Isn't that beautiful? That's beautiful, you guys. So love it. We also see that the new creation is depicted as a garden temple, just like Eden was. All right, now, I have a confession to make. I had on my to-do list to study the pronunciations of all of the gems and minerals that are described. I did not do this. So I'm going to stumble through them. I'm going to try to sound really confident so that you think I know. But there's some really hard words in this passage. So anyway, we'll get through it as best we can. Revelation uh, 21, verse 15. It's gonna be kind of a lengthier passage. The one who spoke to me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city gates and its wall. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. It's actually a cube, very interesting. That's gonna be meaningful. He measured the city with a rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to human measurement, which the angel used. The building material of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. Interesting, right? Have you ever seen clear gold? No, no. John's doing his best to describe these things using words we would understand, but he he can't. Like, he's grasping. So it's like gold, but it's clear. I love that. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first foundation is jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, I have no idea, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The 12 gates are the 12 pearls. That's where we get the pearly gates. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. The main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I did not see a temple in it. Oh my word, this would have been shocking to the original audience, you guys. I did not see a temple in it. Why? Because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it. And the lamp is the lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. And they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the lamb's book of life. All right, so there's a lot there. Uh, We've got walls, gates, gold, precious stones, and notice the entire city is a cube. And this is significant because there is only one other cube in scripture, and it's the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament temple. And now that God has made his dwelling among men, the entire world is the holy of holies. And that is why no temple is necessary. 
Now, in verse 27, we're told that nothing unclean will ever enter into this new garden temple that, that encompasses the entire world. Now, that was certainly the intention for Eden, but as the garden temple, uh, Satan did enter it, and he lured God's people away from God's blessing. What's so clear here is that once the new creation is established, that can never happen again. So we have the new creation as a garden temple. So much of that imagery, that temple imagery is here at the end of Revelation. Uh, we also see that the tree of life and the abundance of fruit that we saw in Eden, they show up again. In chapter 22, um, let's see, chapter 22, verse two, down the middle of the, the city's main street, there's a tree of life on each side of the river bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So we see that God's life-giving, rejuvenating presence is restored to the center of everything. It's bearing fruit and its leaves are healing the nation. And this is intense imagery depicting the abundance and the satisfaction that God's people will enjoy unhindered forever and ever and ever. And take note that there are nations. They're actually mentioned multiple times in this chapter. There are nations and there are kings and there are rulers, which is just another hint of the profound continuity between the world as we know it and the world that will be. Again, growing up, flannel graph, Sunday school Christianity, I just picture us all in this like sort of tiny space because when I think of all the Christians all over the world, that's a lot of people and we're gonna be crammed into like a worship service singing forever. Again, that's troubling to me. I don't even like Disney, you guys, because so many people, right? <laughs> and I just love this idea that, that the new creation is, it's a whole world with like various nations and governments and but it will all be it will all be ultimately governed by the one true king in the fullest way imaginable like this is so cool it's so exciting to think of a world like that um let's see another parallel with eden is the presence of god and this is probably the one that you catch on to the first uh, at the, the the first thing kind of the, the main thing um i think that's emphasized here look with me at 22 like the the second part of Verse three, um, it says, the throne of God and the lamb will be in the city and his servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. I kind of read that really wrong. I should have said, and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. You know, in Eden, from what we can understand, God would visit but he dwells permanently in the new heaven and the new earth in a way that he's never dwelled anywhere before. That phrase, they will see his face. Theologians call this the beatific vision and it's really startling in light of the many references, particularly in the Old Testament, uh, about how humans cannot see the face of God and live. Even Moses, who we're told spoke to God as a man speaks with his friend, had to be hidden in the cleft of a rock when God's glory passed by. 
Think about what was required for the high priest to enter the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. Because of sin, there's always been some kind of separation. But the culmination of everything is to finally and forever see God. Now, finally, we see a subtle reference to the creation mandate. Remember that from all the way back, Revelation chapter 1. Look with me at um, chapter 22, verse 5. It says, night will be no more. People will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign. They, meaning redeemed humanity, they will reign forever and ever. So the mandate from way back in Genesis 1 for mankind to rule and subdue the earth will be fulfilled just as God originally intended. Because guess what, you guys? His plans can't be thwarted. His plans can't be thwarted. And that's another reason we got to believe that this heaven comes down. Because God intended for this earth, this planet earth, to be his planet earth, by golly, it's going to be. And so for us to think, no, he had to like create a plan B somewhere out there up in the, you know, no, no. Like everything he wanted for this earth is going to happen. It's going to happen because God's will cannot and will not ever under any circumstance be thwarted. So the message could not be any more clear. This new creation is a new and improved Eden. God is bringing his story full circle. Having accomplished redemption, he can finally welcome his exiled people back to their forever home. So exciting when you see it in the grand um, storyline of scripture. Fourth fact, the new creation signals the end of the curse. Now, this is just one little line at the beginning of chapter 22, verse 3, but it has massive implications. Let me go ahead and read it. I'll start with the sentence before. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. Now, to really understand the magnitude of that statement, we've got to go back to Genesis 3, right? Because that's when the curse of sin began. And what we see there when we studied that passage is that when we lost our relationship with God, we lost uh, our relationship with everything else. All right, so our relationship with ourselves was broken when our relationship with God was broken. Now we feel shame. We feel the desire to hide and numb our pain, which is why we're in a mental health crisis. It's why addiction and substance abuse is rampant. Because in our fallen nature, we can't even make peace with our own selves. Our relationship with each other was broken. So instead of the perfect one flesh harmony between the man and the woman, according to Genesis 3.16, she would have an unhealthy desire for her husband and he would seek to dominate her. And this, of course, wouldn't affect just marriage. Men and women in their fallen state would manipulate, abuse, and objectify each other in every sphere of life. Sex would be used for self-gratification. The strong would exploit the weak, and the weak would rise up and seek 
to overthrow the strong. Gender relations in our world are a long way from Eden. Another relationship that was broken is our relationship with nature. We were created to have dominion over it. But more often than not, it controls us and there is nothing we can do about it. It won't be long before we're looking at hurricane spaghetti models again, (laughs) bracing ourselves for who knows what. It just snowed in South Texas, you guys. At this point, anything can happen, right? Our relationship with nature has been broken. So all of the tragedies we see in our world are bound up in the curse of sin and all of them will be gone forever because when our relationship with God is restored, all other relationships are restored with it. So we'll be in a right relationship with ourselves. We'll be in a right relationship with each other. We'll be in a right relationship with nature. That is what heaven is. It's being in a right relationship with everything. Last fact, the new creation is for you and me right now. The new creation is for you and for me right now. It is really important to understand that God did not inspire John to write the book of Revelation as some kind of secret code to decipher all the events of Christ's return. This is a letter, it's not a textbook, And it was written to actual churches, actual Christians, experiencing actual problems. Some of the things they were dealing with was spiritual apathy, moral compromise, idolatry. He writes this and he warns them things are actually going to get worse. And believers in Jesus Christ are going to have to choose between faithfulness or compromise. And that's why one of the main themes you're reading in the book of Revelation, something that comes over and over again, is this reference to those who overcome. Those who overcome. He's talking about those who choose faithfulness to Christ over compromise. They'll be rewarded. And one of the main purposes behind the writing of Revelation is to fuel our hope and embolden believers in the face of suffering. And I fear this purpose of the book of Revelation is completely lost on most people. But that's what it was intended to do. Now I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 18. Or you can just listen, whichever you want to do. Anytime I can get us to Romans chapter 8, I will. I think it's my favorite chapter. It might be my favorite chapter ever. All right, so Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul's writing here. He says this. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. For the creation eagerly awaits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, going back to Genesis 3, right? Not willingly, 
but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Our suffering is not worthy to be compared to the glory that awaits. How did Paul know that? How did so many suffering Christians who have lived since Paul know that? (laughs) Well, he compared them. He did the work of comparing the sufferings with the glory. He thought deeply about the future. He meditated on the hope of heaven. He harnessed his imagination to think long and hard about the eternal life secured for him in Christ. You say, well, Paul didn't have the book of Revelation. No, he didn't. But the Old Testament is replete with passages describing the new heaven and the new earth. And Paul savored them. He took them personally, and I believe that is how he was able to endure the many trials and persecutions with this unshakable, resilient joy and confidence in his Savior. Listen to what he writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 8. He says, we do not give up. We do not give up for, this is why, This is why we do not give up, because this is what we believe. Our momentary and light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Paul compared suffering with glory. And when he did that, guess what the suffering looked like? Momentary and light affliction. Wow. Here's the truth we need to take home today. Our experience now is determined by what we believe about then. Our experience now is determined by what we believe about then. What you believe about your eternal future makes all the difference. You know, before COVID hit, we don't do it as much anymore, but Greg and I would get away for a long weekend every three months or so. We're very fortunate to have both sets of grandparents in town, so it's not that hard for us to get away. And it's really interesting that the closer we get to those little getaways, the more carefree I became. And the annoying things that my kids do just didn't bother me so much. The drudgery of the housework didn't feel so bad. The stresses of life felt lighter, and that's because the countdown was on, right? And whatever happened, I would get to leave it all behind and spend a weekend with my man eating chips and guacamole by the pool, right? So an entire bottle of maple syrup just fell on the floor and there's uh, poop in the bathtub, no big deal, because I'm out of here tomorrow. Somebody else can deal with it, right? Like, you just, your whole mindset changes when you're like, I get to leave this. Now, that's one example, a silly example, of how the future affects the present. I have a much more serious example that will um, really hit this home as well. African-American spirituals are full of references to heaven, the resurrection, 
and the final judgment. It's almost entirely what they're about. There's a man by the name of Howard Thurman, an African-American scholar and educator. He gave a lecture in 1947, uh, I believe it was at Harvard University, called The Negro Spiritual Speaks of Life and Death. Now, many during that time, and of of course, even today, uh, were arguing that these spirituals were actually too otherworldly, that the focus of heaven on heaven was actually really harmful, that it made the slaves detach from their present suffering, which actually made their oppression worse, not better. And Thurman countered such arguments with these powerful words. The facts have made it clear that this faith served to deepen the capacity of the slaves for endurance and their ability to absorb their suffering. It taught a people how to ride high in life, how to look squarely in the face of those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope and to use those facts as raw material out of which they fashioned a hope that their environment with all its cruelty could not crush. And this enabled them to reject annihilation and affirm a terrible right to live. That line that stood out to me is a hope that their environment with all of its cruelty could not crush. Do you have a hope like that? A hope that cannot be crushed. Our experience now is determined by what we believe about then. But we've got to do the work of thinking about it, comparing, meditating on future glory. We have to habitually set our minds on things above Well, not only does the knowledge of heaven sustain us in suffering, it helps us confront our idolatry. You see, you and I are bent toward loving this world way too much. And instead of seeing ourselves as resident aliens here, uh, exiles just passing through, we stake our whole lives here on this earth as it is now. And we root our significance in earthly wealth and earthly relationships and earthly achievements and earthly pleasures. And because of this, um, well, let me say this. Every single person in this room lives in a relatively affluent pocket of the world. And so this love of this earth as it is now can actually work out really well for us. We really can live our best life now. You get the right job, you get enough money, you get enough status, you get enough Instagram followers, whatever. You really can. So it can work out really good until something shakes you out of it, right? Like a cancer diagnosis, a job loss, a betrayal you didn't see coming. Or how about a global pandemic that forces you to cancel all your fancy plans and fear for the lives of everyone you love over the age of 65. Like that's the kind of stuff that shakes us awake, right? It helps us remember that, you know what? This isn't the be all end all. We actually weren't made for this world as it is now. We're exiles here. We're waiting for our forever home. I listened to three sermons by Tim Keller. He's one of my favorites on the new heaven and new earth. And it's funny because I only intended to listen to one. YouTube is so mean. Like it gives you all these suggestions on the side. Five hours later, I've watched like four Tim Keller sermons, taking like 20 pages of notes. I don't know what my children did while I was doing that. 
but I learned a lot, and I tell you that because I've actually, I've taken a lot um, in this lesson from those particular messages. But he shared an illustration that I can't stop thinking about. He said, consider a beautiful park. Now, he's in New York City, so parks are a really big deal. They're little pockets of beauty amidst a lot of concrete. Um, he said, think, think about that beauty. You've got the trees and the flowers, the sounds of the birds, the breeze that hits your face. Imagine the sun is shining, children are laughing and playing. You can hear water flowing through. Let's say there's a beautiful fountain. And um, it's just like the perfect park moment. Let's say it's a beautiful 70 degrees outside, just perfect. But then out of the corner of your eye, you spot a homeless person defecating in the grass. The park is his home. He's parked his shopping cart full of his possessions there. He has pitched his tent to sleep in. He bathes in the fountain and he pees in the bushes. Now, I don't think any of us would find a whole lot of beauty in that. That would make us sad. We would want to find him an actual home. As a place to visit, the park is so lovely and satisfying. But as a home, it will break down. Parks aren't designed to bear the weight of someone's entire life. And the same thing is true of this little stint of time we spend on this earth prior to eternity. Now, God would have us enjoy the good gifts he gives us here, but we have to understand that they cannot hold the weight of our whole life. And there's a lot of wealthy, successful people bawling their eyes out in a therapist's office on the regular. Why? Because we were made for more than this, and the very best this world has to offer cannot truly satisfy Knowledge of the new creation should confront our idols. It should shift our gaze and it should challenge what we treasure. I used to make a lot of fun of my husband for loving Lord of the Rings so much. I was like, nerd alert, nerd alert. All right, Ka Carolyn, did our power die? It's not recording anymore. I don't know how long that red light's been off. And maybe it's not worth trying to salvage. <laughs> Is it like totally dead? All right. Okay, it came back on. We'll see. We'll see if, it, if we can salvage it. Um, anyway, back to my husband, nerd alert. But I've started reading uh, the books with my 11-year-old. And now I'm realizing like why my husband is such a fan. They're actually really amazing. Uh, and one of the main characters in the series is a hobbit named Sam, and he gets to a really low point in the story. Nothing is working out. Hope is all but lost. But then he looks up, and Tolkien describes it this way. Actually, I love this quote so much. I put it for you there in your listening guide. It says this, there, peeping among the cloud rack above the dark tour high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. And the beauty of it smote his heart. As he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Isn't that beautiful? Ladies, this end time stuff it's all just information 
and really good clickbait for Instagram and Facebook until you willingly and regularly engage your mind in the glories of heaven and allow the beauty that you see there to smite your heart. That's the point. And for some of you, all that comes to mind, and for so many in the church, and, and I don't blame us, like this is what we're seeing all the time, it's what we're hearing all the time, but, but all that comes to mind, you think of the book of Revelation, is the Antichrist and the mark of the beast and all manner of end time speculation. It literally makes me sick in the stomach when I think of all of the terrible teaching and flat out lies that are out there. Ladies, let me set the record straight, just in case anybody's thinking this, the COVID vaccine is not the mark of the beast. It is not. It is not. People are believing that junk. You want to know about the mark of the beast? Step one, get off the internet. Get off the internet and get in your Bible. And you look at what that would have meant to the original audience and it'll give you some clues. Man, I'm so tired of it. I don't know if you guys can tell. So many believers have allowed all the end times prophecy garbage to hijack the purpose for, what the, for which the book of Revelation was written. This book of the Bible was written to smote our hearts with the sure victory of Christ, the certain restoration of all that is broken, and the sheer beauty of heaven that we might look up out of this forsaken land and experience a return of hope over and over and over and over again every single day until Jesus returns or calls us home. Revelation, the book of Revelation is hope fuel. It's hope fuel. It exists to embolden us, to demolish our idols, to relentlessly pursue Jesus and fearlessly do the work and suffer the cost of making him known in our world. And if it is not doing that for you, then you are reading it wrong. I think a lot of us are, and it's not necessarily our fault. That's what we've been taught, and it's time to relearn, okay? A lot of damage has been done. It's time to start working to undo it. And I'm hoping this lesson has maybe fired you up. All right, so we gotta wrap up this whole study, which is honestly, <laughs> it feels really awkward every time. So you've spent eight weeks in a subject and you're supposed to like put a pretty bow on it and I'll go home. And it's just like nothing I can say right now is gonna be anything but incredibly anticlimactic. <laughs> but I'm gonna try a little bit. God created the man first, but then he quickly declared that it is not good for him to be alone. So he caused him to fall into a deep sleep and wounded him in order to create the woman. They were united as one, setting the precedent for men to leave father and mother, joining themselves to their wives. And they would do this with a mission to rule as God's co-regents on his behalf. Key words in that paragraph that I just described. Leaving. Wounding. Union. And kingdom. Some of you are shaking your heads. You just got it. Leaving. Wounding. 
union, and kingdom. You see the foreshadowing? Do you see how gender points to Jesus? Do you see how the creation of the woman, when traced all throughout the storyline of the Bible, leads us straight to the bride of Christ, who he loves and cherishes for all eternity? How absurd that women would ever be considered less than, second rate, or some kind of plan B, The intentional creation of both male and female reveals something about the plan of God that cannot relegate women to the sidelines without doing great harm to the gospel story. Women matter to God. And listen, you, you matter to God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I don't even know exactly how to thank you for what you have done in these weeks. And for me, it's been a year. It's been a year of research and learning. And uh, (laughs) you've done such a work at confronting some of, so many of my my assumptions. And I've, I've come out the other side. And what I hope for all of us here is just coming out the other side with a deeper appreciation for what you've revealed about yourself and your word, what you've revealed about us as women, uh, just the beauty of how all of it, all of it, even gender points to Jesus. And and Lord, I I just, I pray that you would um, just protect us from having a, a vision or a view of womanhood or manhood or gender or marriage or, or any of it that is too small. And when we're making checklists, we can know that our vision is it's too small. And I, I pray that you would broaden it, that you would, you would give us eyes to see how all of this points to Jesus, how all of it points to the gospel, and how we get to play a part in the grand story of redemption that's been going since Genesis chapter 1. It continues on in today, and we have a place in that. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be um, daughters of Eve, restored and whole in Christ, continuing to carry forth your mission in this world, which is to rule as your representatives alongside the men that you have placed in our lives. And God, I thank you for the men who know this stuff and who live it and who love women and who honor them. And God, I just pray your blessing on them. Just bless the snot out of them, Lord. Just, just bless them so much because there's not much worldly accolades that's going to men who, who honor and respect and, and advocate for women. That's a small job. I thank you for the men who are doing it and I pray you'd raise up more. And Lord, we just thank you. We love you, for, we love you so much for your son. Uh, we thank you for your word. Um, we thank you for this study. May it bear fruit far beyond this one generation represented in this room. I pray that mamas would go home and tell their sons and their daughters, the grandmas in this room would tell grandchildren, and that this would continue on, this big, broad, beautiful vision for men and women partnering together in the gospel. For the glory of Christ. And it's to that end that we pray all these things. Amen.